day. This is Jim Hansen. I'm an advisory board member on the Golf Week Best uh, Course Rating uh, Advisory Board, and it's my pleasure to host uh, this, uh, I think, sixth pad- podcast in my series. And today's guest is Dr. Richard Hurley, uh, better known perhaps to some as Dr. Bentgrass. Uh, I want to give him a good introduction and uh, so everybody in the audience can uh, know a little bit about him before we set off into the conversation. For 40 years, Dr. Hurley has been involved with improving turf grasses in association with his faculty position at Rutgers University's Center for Turfgrass Science. His experience includes working as a uh, golf course superintendent. For a while, he was a caddy on the PGA Tour. Uh, and um, perhaps most importantly, uh, direct involvement with dozens of golf course design and construction projects throughout, really throughout the world, including North America, the UK, Ireland, Europe, Russia, China, Japan, Australia, Africa, uh, a pretty amazing uh, career. He has assisted in course preparation for 30 Masters tournaments for five U.S. Opens, has attended and, and probably been uh, on call at six British Opens, as well as dozens of other national golf events. Uh, there's a lot to credit him for in terms of his many specific contributions to the improvement of turf grasses, but at this point, I'm just going to mention uh, a few. His highly successful development and commercial release of both South Shore and L93 uh, creeping bent grasses in the 1990s, with Richard's L93 establishing a track record as one of the most widely used bent grasses for tees, greens, and fairways uh, really in the world. But Richard didn't stop there. He went to de- went on to develop a 007 bent grass that has been that has proven to be uh, a very significant improvement over the L93, and which is now performing very well on golf courses, tees, and uh, on greens, tees, and fairways all over the world, including again South Africa and Australia. And more recently, starting in 2017, Dr. Hurley and an associate at Rutgers. Um, have released yet another variety uh, of bent known as 777 or 777, a new bent that is shown to provide excellent heat tolerance while producing a putting surface that is fine and dense while producing a putting um, a, a close close uh, close cut. Um, I won't name them all, but some of Dr. H- uh, Hurley's course projects have included uh, Spanish Bay on the Monterey Peninsula. Beijing Golf Club in China, the North Country Golf Club in Hokkaido, Japan, uh, the Putting Green at the White House uh, in Washington, D.C., Beth Page Black on Long Island, uh, the Kildare Club in Ireland, uh, the Bayonne Golf Club in New Jersey. He's actually written a book about that. Um, Pestavo Golf and Yacht Club in Moscow, Russia, and the West Course at Wentworth in England. Um, I'm going to ask him later to specifically talk to us about his work uh, that he's done on the golf course in Japan that will be used later this summer in the Olympic Games. So that's a so Richard, welcome. Uh, I hope I've, I've given you. you enough of an introduction, and we can go into other things as we go. But I'd like to begin by asking you to, to tell the audience about your background in golf, uh, which goes back, you know, to your boyhood, really, and how you came to be a turf grass specialist. Well, my parents lived next to a golf course, so that was the start of it all. I am from the Jersey Shore of New Jersey, and uh, 
the name of the course at that time was the Asbury Park Golf and Country Club. And that's where it all started, uh, picking balls up on the range at 12 years old and then caddying at 14 years old. And uh, it just went on from there. Uh, really some, you know, very interesting things happen as a young man is that I think it was like 1958, 59, 60, the, uh, the uh, Negro Golf Tour, the black players that were uh, kept off the regular tour by the Caucasian rule, uh, they came to the course, the Asbury Park Golf and Country Club, and uh, there was a tournament there called the Ballantine Three Ring Open. And so here is a, a young, I don't know, 13, 14-year-old, and up comes Charlie Sifford and Lee Elder and Teddy Rhodes and Pete Brown and uh, Willie Brown. And and during the uh, early in the week in the Pro-Am, there was uh, Joe Lewis and Ophelia Gibson. Uh, uh, so it was quite a remarkable thing for a young boy to be exposed at that and to see uh, actually golf at the highest caliber uh, at a young age. So I, you know, I caddied for uh, for Lee Elder. And, and in fact, I I ran into Lee two, uh, two or three years ago at the, the Masters and I went up to him and it was interesting. He remembered the tournament. He won the tournament. He remembered it. And uh, I, I know he didn't remember me, but he remembered the tournament. And that was really uh, quite interesting at that age. Uh, then I went on to college uh, and I started my college career in Miami, Florida. And I met Bruce Crampton, uh, who was on the tour, uh, Australian player, one of the top players in the world. And I met Bruce. I went to the tournament, to the Doral Open, and, and during a practice round and just, you know, struck up a conversation. He was out practicing, uh, playing, I think it was the back nine, and I just followed him. And then I came back to New Jersey that following a summer, I think it was the summer of 66, 1966, and uh, Bruce arranged me, for me to caddy for him at Upper Montclair PGA tournament, one of the richest tournaments in the in the country at that time on the tour. So I caddied for Bruce and I kept in touch with him. Uh, he did quite well that that tournament. I can't remember the exact finish, but he played well. I do remember the first round he shot 69. I don't know the exact finish though. But uh, when I went back to school in Miami uh, after the summer, uh, the Doral Open came back. And I took a week off from school, from college, and caddy for him at Drow Open. And so I've been friends with Bruce uh, throughout the years. And so I, I've, so in other words, I've seen the the best golfers. I've seen the pro tour. Uh, I really uh, got any thoughts of of being a professional golfer out of my mind when I saw the quality of play, both uh, with Charlie Sifford and Bruce Crampton. And so. Uh, I worked on golf courses through my college years, and I went to the University of Rhode Island and uh, majored in turf, got my bachelor's and master's. And then after that, I was a golf course superintendent for four and a half years. 
and then I went back to school at Rutgers University to get my PhD in turf grass breeding. So that was that was the the start of it and got me into it. But it all it, it wouldn't have happened if my parents didn't live next to a golf course. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's great background. How important to your career in turf grass was your work as a golf course superintendent? Uh, I mean, oh. there's obviously there were lots of superintendents. I mean, I grew up working on a course myself, and our superintendent I don't think had gone to college. Certainly didn't have any agronomy, you know. So I mean, I think back then, 50 years ago, you know, we're talking about both of us here. I mean, not that you were that much of an exception, but the fact that you had the background and the college work in turf grass did make you, I mean, it put you at the highest level of, of, of superintending, I guess, in terms of knowing grasses. Well, you, you really need to see both sides. You need to see uh, the turf side from the superintendent standpoint and the golfer's standpoint, because there's a lot of things that you can research and uh, you can say to do, but when you're in the fire of a hot summer or a cold winter or any parts of the year and you're trying to keep the turf alive, uh, it can be difficult, especially if you're at a course uh, that has a modest budget. The, some of the hardest working superintendents are the ones that, that don't have the money because they make up for it with their ingenuity and their hard work uh, and their inventiveness. They invent things uh, to uh, make up for not having the money. But uh, you really need to see all, really all three sides, the, the golfer side, the superintendent side, and then the professional side. Um, you've been involved with golf and golf course conditioning for 50 years, and you've been involved, and it's given, mm -hmm. you, you've probably been playing golf, around golf for a little bit longer than that. Um, what have been the most significant changes in the science, the engineering, and the management of turf grass for golf courses over the past half century, 50 years? Well, uh, you certainly have the universities and the research that is going on at the universities. So we've got uh, the agricultural-based universities at, in, within the states. Uh, some of the states uh, have had more resources and more staff devoted to it, but there's at least uh, 30 universities that have a very significant uh, turf research program. So that's part of it. Also, you have to give credit to the commercial companies, companies like Toro and Jacobson and, and uh, Rainbird and, and on and on. The, their research staff, what they've come up with the equipment is, is incredible uh, compared to what you had 50 years ago. But if I had to put it at the top of the list and, um, you know, when I say this, it sounds like I'm biased, but Rutgers University has really transformed it. Uh, uh, we have a staff there now of uh, approximately, well, we've got the, the main staff of PhD researchers that are full professors. There's probably 10 or 12, and it covers all disciplines. It covers uh, turf physiology, pathology, uh, uh, soils, soil management, uh, insects, weed control, and they have support personnel during the summertime. There's over 50 that are working on various projects at Rutgers University. Uh, we have the largest 
cool season turf grass breeding program in the world. And so what we're trying to do is develop grassers that are more disease resistant, that require less input, that you can mow at a closer height of cut, that are they're fine and dense and uniform and attractive, uh, good, good uh, winter performance and summer performance. So uh, our program, we've developed hundreds of varieties and it's not only on the golf course, the varieties that we've developed uh, at Rutgers, say of the ryegrasses are used on soccer fields and football fields, places like the Rose Bowl, uh, any of the bowl games that are played at Christmas that they overseed their fields with ryegrass, they're Rutgers ryegrasses. Uh, a couple of years ago when the World Cup was in Russia, uh, those grasses on the, uh, on the soccer, what they call football, uh, was Rutgers ryegrasses. And you mentioned uh, uh, Japan coming up in a couple of weeks. You've got 007 Bentgrass uh, on the greens at the Kasumasaki Golf Club where they're going to be hosting the men's and the women's events. Uh, you could, We can go on and on. Yankee Stadium, the bluegrass is there, sod growers. So Rutgers grasses are used all over the world. and And the ability to have improve bent grasses that you could mow at these extremely low heights to cut is very important. Very good. Uh, I'm a, you know, I'm trained as a historian of technology and I've taught history of technology at Auburn University for 30 some <laughs> years. So I'm interested in, in, in when I ask you about the changes, I mean, what you've said is all great answer, but I want to ask you about some specific technologies and how they've yeah. affected your field and, 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 mm -hmm. and golf courses. How about the impact over the last 50 years of the digital computer. I mean, what what have you been able to do? What have what have agronomists been able to do, and superintendents for that matter, with computers and computing technology that didn't exist before? Well, certainly with uh, irrigation systems. If you go back to the even to the 1980s, a lot of the irrigation systems were manual, totally manual or mechanical uh, setup, maybe with with very rudimentary clocks. Uh, once you have the computers, the, the state-of-the-art irrigation systems today, they've got a master panel that uh, is located uh, mostly within the superintendent's office complex. And then you've got satellite uh, locations out on the course. You've got a golf course that what he does, he takes out his phone and he can dial in the code and turn on the irrigation system. So in other words, if the superintendent is out and he sees a hot spot, say on the fifth green, and there's space between groups that are playing there, he can just get out his phone and he can turn on his irrigation system right from there. So the computerization for golf courses has been incredible from that, from the irrigation standpoint. Also, another thing is with the sprayers, the state-of-the-art sprayers that, uh, they really have a computer on board. You see the, the uh, operator is sitting up front and he can dial in uh, the rate that he wants to apply of the product and he can be very specific. And also some of these newer machines, uh, if, if you want to say spray a green that is oval, and you are going across it with a sprayer that has three booms of say 12 or 13 feet wide, uh, that computer will turn on and off the individual nozzles so you 
are actually spraying the oval and not a square, so to speak, if you understand that. Mm -hmm. So so the computerization of the uh, equipment for spraying, uh, that saves on pesticides. It gets the product right to the target at the right rate. Uh, if the if the operator speeds up, then it recalibrates. If he slows down, it recalibrates. So the computers uh, have totally revolutionized those those two areas there. Yeah. How about another technology that when I go back and watch uh, old uh, broadcasts of uh, CBS Golf Classic or the Big Three Golf or whatever, and you see black and white television and you see what the courses look like. Of course, you know, the, the course conditioning was a lot different, but what about the impact of color television in terms of golfer expectations about conditions and so forth? I mean, uh, that it seems like that has to have had a, a major effect on how we come to expect, what, what we come to expect from course conditioning. I would say uh, mostly positive. Uh, mm -hmm. There are some occasions where you'll see a tournament and the greens look pale or blotchy and people will say what happened there. But if you watch tournaments like uh, of a few weeks ago at Torrey Pines, absolutely beautiful. The, uh, the views and the aerials uh, to see that property, uh, the color of it. Uh, I think it makes everybody want to go out and play golf. Also at the Masters, the Masters is absolutely beautiful in color. Uh, so, so mostly positive, but some negatives with, with uh, if you go back, what was it, maybe five, six years ago when they played the Open at Chambers of A uh, on television, that did not look good at all. I mean, that was not a good commercial for the way golf courses should look. So. I would say mostly good, but uh, you got to be careful if if things don't look good, it can expose itself on TV. Maybe 20 years ago, uh, a concept came out and was in association with some of the environmental uh, concerns about in uh, golf courses, the the concept of the Augusta syndrome, that that golfers perhaps watching the coverage of the Masters, and you were so have been so deeply involved with the Masters, that golfers came to think that those conditions that Augusta had, you know, only maybe for a few for a short stretch during the spring down in Georgia, that those were conditions that their own course should be able to live up to. I mean, what do you think of the concept of the Augusta syndrome, and do you think it's still a problem of sorts? Well, there's no getting around it. Uh... Augusta is about as perfect as it can be, and they have the resources, and it's beautiful. Uh, but, you know, the, they, they do everything to their ability to be environmentally correct. And I don't, to me, I understand uh, the concept, but, uh, you know, it gets back to the individual club. There are, there are clubs that uh, the, the the golfers watch the tournaments. They go back to their superintendent or their greens committee, and they say, "Why can't we do that?" But it really goes right back to the budgets. Uh, there are maybe I don't know. I'm just guessing five or ten percent of all the private clubs can afford the Augusta look, uh, but there's a lot that can't. And I don't. I really don't understand why the golfers just can't accept that. Uh, we're playing a club that has a certain amount of resources and it's fun to go out and play it as it is. So uh, it, uh, I certainly understand the, the Augusta syndrome, but yeah. I wish it, I wish they weren't criticized for that. 
Um, do you think, um, do golfers generally um, understand much about turf grass? I mean, for example, there are times, it's my understanding, I mean, I've, I was involved to some extent in the golfing environment summits that took place back in the 90s that led to the environmental principles for golf course. So I was mostly sitting in as a third party observer, but I, I got involved and I wrote some things. Um, do you think golfers understand that sometimes a little brown look in, in turf is actually correct and, and good that it's not, that not, not, you know, lush dirt and green is not necessarily the only sign of healthy grass. Yeah. The, I think the, the answer to the question for me is, by my experience, because I play a lot of golf, is that the average golfer, a lot of the golfers, they're very nice, very polite. But when it comes to what's happening on the golf course, <laughs> they're clueless. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, I remember I mentioned to somebody that uh, they were putting seed out on the greens for winter overseeding in Florida. And the seed was about to germinate. And a very intelligent man say, what is germination? So, I mean, that's just one indication. There, are, <laughs> The average golfer really doesn't know what's happening out on the golf course at all. And they don't know what they're looking at. And what you say, uh, the best golf courses uh, are maintained on the edge as far as moisture. You want them as dry as possible. And if you're going to get them as dry as possible, you're going to have some spots that are off color and brown. So, uh, and that's hard to relate because the, the, uh, the upper end golf courses want it, they want it all green. And uh, the golf courses that are, uh, have modest uh, abilities and, and budgets, the golfers are quick to criticize if it's not green, so. Well, um, so we're basically talking about some of the misconceptions or non-understandings yeah. that golfers have about turf grasses and playing conditions. Are What are some of the other misconceptions that golfers really reflect? Well, uh, I'm going to mention one here that has been around for a long time, going back to Johnny Miller in the early 90s, uh, this business of uh, grain grain on the greens and and the the thought of grain on the greens is that the grass would lay down and grow in a certain direction and impact the speed of the ball so in other words if the ball was going with the grass that is laying down it will go faster and if it is going against the grain that it would go slower so uh all you have to do is turn on the TV today, and that's all. That's what you hear all the time: is uh, he's putting into the grain, he's he's going down grain. And I would say, just a, a summary statement that what they say on TV is grossly overestimated. There's there's really no no scientific uh, uh, confirmation of what they're saying about grain. And there are thousands of golf courses in the United States that have Poanya greens. And Poanya has no grain at all. The grass just grows upright. Uh, bent grasses uh, don't have much grain, especially, especially on the tournament courses where they're playing because of the equipment, the grooming, the verticutting, the brushing. 
for the most part, that grass is growing upright. So there's really to to uh, constantly talk about grain there is is overstatement. Now on Bermuda grass, they can be grainy, but I'll make the statement again that on the on the PGA Tour, the courses that are going to host the tournaments, those grasses are groomed and brushed, especially with the new ultra dwarf uh, Bermuda grasses. They don't have as much grain. Uh, and again, it's overstated. I wish the the commentators on the TV would talk more about uphill, downhill, side hill rather than grain. And and another point that goes with that is the you know the optical illusions. I I never hear any of the announcers use those two words optical illusions. What do you hear? To uh, what was it two weeks ago at Torrey Pines? I heard Paul Azinger said that Phil Nicholson has a putt within invisible ocean pull. And I sat there and I heard, I, I said, invisible ocean pull. What scientifically, please tell me how that happens. And I, I say that most of what you hear uh, when they say that uh, the ball always breaks to the lake or to the mountains or to the ocean, that there's an optical illusion. Uh, I remember as a kid, there was a there was a place in New Jersey where you took your car and you put it in neutral and the car would roll what it looked to be uphill. It was an optical illusion because of the, the hills and the surrounding uh, uh, made it look to your eyes. Your interpretation is you were rolling uphill. And that's what happens on the golf course with the lakes and the mountains and the trees and everything. There's lots of optical illusions. So this business of grain and and invisible ocean pull, I, <laughs> it's not only me, there's lots of my contemporaries, we just laugh. Well, let me follow up on that. Why don't the broadcasters know better? I mean, why, I mean, have you never been asked or have your colleagues uh, never been asked to do any kind of informational uh, consulting for the broadcaster so they well, would understand this better? I have not. Uh, I have not really sat down with a broadcaster to discuss it. There have been just you know short, very short, few word conversations. I know that some of my contemporaries, some professional agronomists, have have tried to talk to them. Uh, they're dug in on it. I mean, uh, they're really dug in on it. And uh, I just don't understand why. You know, another interesting thing about this is that a lot of it depends on the network you watch. If you watch the Masters, uh, when the announcers uh, go to the Masters, there is a list. I don't know. It's two, three, four pages of all the words and the phrases that they can say and they can't say. They cannot say, you will never hear the word grain at the Masters. And if any of those announcers says that, I'll guarantee you they'll be fired. Uh, but then on other networks, there there are some, and, and I think everybody knows who the ones are, that it's just grain, grain, grain. And, and one of the funniest things happened to me. Uh, this was, I guess, about 15 years ago. Tiger Woods was playing at the Doral Open on the 10th hole, the par five. 
And the announcer said, I think it was Johnny Miller. He says, uh, Tiger's got a 240-yard shot into the grain. And I, <laughs> again, it's so memorable. What does that mean? So uh, I just think uh, at this point, it's almost hopeless with, with, uh, with them. And as you say, why don't they ask the professionals? Yeah. Um, I would like to ask you to, again, given the audience, I mean, mostly a lot of our, our golf week course raiders are the ones that are mostly listening to the podcast not that we don't have others as well but there's a lot about grasses that we we really don't understand either we're hopefully a little better informed than the average but you know i live in birmingham alabama and golf clubs and their superintendents struggle here at the clubs in particular over whether to continue uh, everything and every expense required to maintain their bent grass putting greens uh, and you, of course, are Dr. Bentgrass. Do you think some of these golf courses in hot, humid regions like the American Southeast uh, should, in fact, convert over to some of the new um, Bermuda strains? Or are they, are they okay with the bents that they're using? I know in the, in the Birmingham area, it seems like some clubs have converted over to Ber the new Bermudas. But I actually belong to a club that doesn't, in fact, ever want to do that. <laughs> They're just so committed to bent. So give us a general framework of, of, okay. of this issue as it stands in 2021. Well, the world of grasses, I'll simplify it. The world of grasses is not that difficult to understand. You have the cool season grasses, obviously are adapted to the cool climates of the world. And this is all over the world, whether it be in Northern Japan or in Russia or Scandinavia or Canada. Uh, much of the U.S., no matter uh, where you go in cool season climates around the world, you're going to find bent grasses, bluegrasses, ryegrasses, tall fescues, fine fescues. These are well adapted to the, that climate. Conversely, if you go to the warm season climates, you're going to find either zoysia grass or Bermuda grass or Kikuya grass and a few other grasses that are well adapted to that extreme heat. The hardest part the hardest locations, geographic weather locations, are in between where they're called transition zones. And sometimes transition zones can occur in a few miles. If you take California, if you go along the coast of San Francisco, where it's very cool because of the maritime climate, you've got cool season grasses. But you only have to go inland a few miles, go over to Oakland, and in that area, uh, there could be a 20, 30 degree difference in the temperatures and you got warm season grasses. And there's other locations in Southern California that have that similar thing. However, on the Eastern part of the United States, when you transition from say, let's just take uh, New York City or Philadelphia. And if we go across, go West to say Columbus, Ohio, and then we go South. So every 50, 100 miles, we, we go South. Uh, we start to go into the transition zone. So the heart of the transition zone would be, say, from uh, Richmond, Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, St. Louis, Kansas City. And when you go down to Birmingham and Alabama, but Birmingham, Alabama, and let's say Atlanta, Georgia, or Augusta, Georgia, you're pretty much at the southern location uh, for the transition zone. 
the same thing in Texas. If you go from Dallas, you're in the transition zone. If you go down to Houston, you're in the southern end of it. So now to answer your question, the problem in the transition zone is that neither one of the cool season or warm season grasses are well adapted. And you got problems on both ends. You got problems, obviously, with the bent grasses in the summer. And on a golf course in Birmingham, Alabama, the bent grass looks quite nice, October, November, December, January through June. And the problems may develop in July and August. Uh, now, if you take the Bermuda grass, you got the opposite. You just look what happened this past winter in Texas. You had uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, where they had, what, 20, 25 days where the temperature was down near zero, 10 degrees. There was a lot of winter kill with Bermuda grass there. And, and even with covers in some locations, they had damage. Uh, in your, if, if somebody in Birmingham wanted to go to Bermuda grass, there's, there's questions to ask. And that would be, number one, what is your course like? Do you have shaded greens? See, Bermuda grass performs best when you have, oh, six to eight hours of direct sunlight all year round. Not only in the heat of the summer, but fall and, and winter and spring. You need a lot of sunlight for Bermuda grass to thrive. So if you have one or two or three shaded greens, You'll have to make a commitment to cut the trees down so you get full sunlight. Now, in the wintertime, you still have the problems that maybe this past winter you didn't get the extreme cold that Texas got, but there's plenty of examples of the cold fronts coming down the East Coast and getting those same temperatures in Atlanta and in North Carolina and South Carolina and other locations where they might want to convert to Bermuda. So then what happens is uh, uh, you've got the covers that uh, if we're going to have Bermuda grass in these transition zones, there's going to be maybe two or th three weeks, say 14, 21 days, where the superintendent is going to have to take the covers out, cover the greens. And then if the golfers want to play after, say, 10 o'clock, you got to take the covers off, put the covers back. And then this is a... Uh, a time and, and resource commitment with the crew. Uh, what happens if these cold days are on Saturday or Sunday or on a holiday? That means superintendent has to be there. He's got to have, what, four to six to eight of his crew there to, to uh, take the covers off at 10 o'clock and then come back at four in the afternoon and put them back on. So it's not a slam dunk. So there's there's two sides to the story. And I'm not saying that uh, Bermuda grass conversions aren't good in some locations, but you better make sure you get full sunlight on all your greens, and you also better make sure you make the commitment with the covers. You know? Just using Birmingham as an example again, you know, it's a very hilly and somewhat even mountainous area, and some of the courses are up at a, uh, up higher, and some courses are down in valleys, yeah. and so even that, I mean, the the climate zones that you're talking about can be very locale specific can't they so oh, exactly you can't, so if this every every course is a it has its own situation that has to be evaluated very carefully that's that's true you get microclimates within the golf 
within the golf course. And obviously I wasn't around when this happened, but when Augusta was first opened back in the mid thirties, it was reversed where the first, second and third hole was what we call 10, 11, 12 today. And uh, one of the reasons why they uh, reversed the nines was because the 12th green, the famous par three 12th green, they would get frost and that would be the last green that would be frost free and it would hold up play. Tell, tell my audience um, about what is uh, in, on the horizon in terms of the so-called super bents. Uh, they sound super good. Are they? Uh, what 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 does this what do the super bents uh, enable horses to do that well, they haven't been able to do? Well, you know, when you breed grasses, it's a long term commitment. So we started uh, actually the turf breeding program started at Rutgers in 1960 by a fellow named Dr. Reed Funk. And he was a genius. He was he was my major professor for my Ph.D. program. And actually his protocols and his procedures that we, we still follow him today. And he passed away uh, about 18 years ago. So um, we have been breeding grasses for a long time and it takes a long time to develop variety. It takes, it takes 12 to 15 years to develop one variety. So in 1982, I went to Dr. Funk and I said, uh, at that time I was breeding rye grasses and and bluegrasses and tall fescues. And I said that, you know, I'd like to start a bentgrass program. So he and I initiated that at Rutgers in the early eighties. So uh, the first thing you do is you go out and you collect, uh, you go to old golf courses and you look for patches that are growing on the green, what we call segregates. And we take our knife and if we find something attractive, we'll collect it. So let me make an analogy. It's just like a basketball coach. The top basketball coaches uh, around the country in colleges, what are they doing at this time of the year? They're scouring the world for talent. They're, they're going out looking for talent and collecting names, hundreds of names. And at the highest level, uh, they're, they're, really ruthless as far as how they evaluate their talent. You could have a young fellow that he could shoot threes, but he can't dribble uh, and he can't run. And you could have somebody that's really fast, but he can't shoot. Uh, and the odds of finding all the qualities you need in one basketball player, it's one in a million like Michael Jordan. So that's what we're looking for. So over the years, since 1982, we have collected thousands and thousands of plants looking for the one in a million. And we have found we've got, you know, eight or 10 or 12 that are really good, have good genetics. And over the years, we have evaluated, we've crossbreeded, and we're trying to put all the qualities that we're looking for for putting greens into one plant. And so that means we want something fine textured, we want it dense, but not overly too dense because we don't want it to build up too much thatch. We want a pleasing color. Uh, we don't want it to purple because there is a genetic trait for purpling in cool weather. So we, we don't want that. Uh, we want to have uh, good spring green up. 
we want disease resistance. There's diseases like dollar spot and brown patch and pythium and anthracnose. So we want that. So trying to get all these qualities into a variety uh, takes years. So we're basically on since, say, uh, since Pencross was put on the market in the mid 1950s, we're on the fifth generation. And now what we're doing is we're stacking the genes. We're, we're, we're breeding the best with the best, the best with the best. We're stacking the genes and we're incorporating all these qualities into one. So uh, in the last 20 years, we've made tremendous improvements. When I say we, uh, there's a team at Rutgers, Dr. Stacy Bonus. Uh, Stacy is the head of the breeding program right now. I am uh, semi-retired myself, and uh, uh, Stacy is really very talented. Probably the most talented uh, breeder in the world for bent grasses. Uh, we have Dr. Bill Meyer. Dr. Bill Meyer is, is uh, close to my age and he's getting ready to retire, but Bill Meyer has been fantastic in shepherding the program over the last 40 years. Uh, we have another young individual, uh, Dr. Philip Vines. He is a young uh, PhD and he is involved in the program. And then we have a tremendous support group of technicians that have been with the program for 30 years. So. It takes a team, and when I when I, I coined the term superbents because we wanted to to separate uh, what was used, say, 25 years ago. It was very popular for the A and G varieties, A1, A4. They're very popular for grains, and these new superbents are so much better. They're light years better. So the the quick answer is is. Uh, over 40 years, we have genetically modified the bent grasses from basically common wild strains into these grasses that can take that uh, 0.105 height of cut on greens. Just think about it, 0.105. I mean, you're cutting just like a razor, and the grasses have to be able to take it. So... Uh, you know, that's maybe a long answer for the super bends, but they are really good. A final question for now, and we'll have to get you back on with me here soon. How far can these advances go with genetic engineering and the like? I mean, what will turf grasses be able to do 50 years from now or 100 years from now? And will all of it make golf course design and conditioning and maintenance less expensive or even more expensive? Well, what's the future out there? Well, one of the big expenses for golf courses is the use of pesticides. Fungicides are expensive. Uh, you have some golf courses that are spending anywhere from eighty to $200,000 a year on fungicides. And with the disease resistance on these newer bands, enhancements, enhancement and disease resistance, and for the future, a tremendous saving is going to be on the use of fungicides. We already see about a 50% uh, reduction in fungicides with these newer bents compared to the older varieties of the uh, 1980s and 1990s. So I would say one of the biggest enhancements will be with 
saving on fungicides. The second is going to be on the quality of the turf. You're going to have a putting green that is smooth as silk, and and I don't know how much lower uh, the uh, manufacturers can develop uh, equipment to mow a green lower than 105. Uh, I don't think the pro golfers want to have putting speeds of more than 12 or 13 on the stint meters. So I think the biggest advancement is with uh, reduced fungicides, improved quality, and persistence that the grass is going to grow and, and going to thrive. Final question for you for, day, for today, Richard. How would you define a perfect golf course? It's kind of a trick question, I realize. Well, if I put my golfing hat on there, uh, you know, I love to play golf. And that uh, when I reach 70, uh, I'll be 75 in September. I really lost a lot of distance. And uh, I'm still a uh, five handicap. But a perfect golf course for me would be one that is fun for everybody. So that means uh, tees, variable tees, to be able to play at 6,000 yards, or certainly for the ladies to have a, a very nice golf course at maybe 4,500 yards. And on the other end, for the golfers that can hit the ball further, 6,700, 7,000, 7,200 yards. So that's part of it is variable length. Also, I think uh, forced carries get get very challenging for the mid and the high handicappers. So I think it's got to be uh, the architects got to be very careful where and how many force carries they put into it, into the design. Uh, I think uh, too many, in my opinion, too many bunkers and too large a bunkers uh, become very difficult for the mid to high handicapper. There is nothing more difficult to have a bunker shot of say, 15, 20, 30 yards. That's one of the most difficult shots. So I think bunker size and number of bunkers, I would, I, I would keep in the middle. And as far as the putting greens, I think just gently rolling and gently challenging putting greens. So that would be the ideal golf course for me. Well, Richard, I have, this has been delightful. I am, I, I, you know, I knew, I'd seen your name before, uh, I, I really uh, saw some of the comments you were making on social media, and I said, I've got to talk to this guy. And I am so happy I chose to do it. You are, you are terrific. Uh, your answers were so helpful to, I think, will be helpful to everybody that listens to them. Uh, I, I hope we can uh, meet face-to-face -face someday, maybe play a round of golf. And certainly I'd, I'd like to uh, have you back on the podcast at some time in the future. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, I'd, I'll be back uh, anytime you ask. Thank you, Richard. Okay.